Is there a price for success or are there win-win solutions for both employers and employees to achieve organizational success? Uh, can these two be compatible? Can we have employee well-being? Can we listen to the needs of employees? Can we invest in their training and their skills building and still have market advantage and competitive edge as a company? These are some of the highly exciting and interesting issues that I'm discussing today with my two guests. Um, they each come from a different European uh, agency. One of them is Giovanni Russo. Giovanni holds a position as expert at SEDEFOP, where he works on the issues of skills development, skills mismatch, and skills utilization. He joined SEDEFOP in 2010 and worked on the European Skills and Jobs Survey on the SEDEFOP Company Survey Pilot. He's an empirical researcher with a background in labor and behavior economics and more than 15 years of experience in academia. My other guest joining me today is Gijs van Oten. He's a research manager in Eurofound's employment unit with a specific expertise in cross-national survey methodology and the analysis of workplace practices and organizational strategies. Gijs joined Eurofound in 2010 and has worked on all three Eurofound surveys, focusing on the European Company Survey in recent years. In 2016, he took a break from Eurofound where he was working at the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. So a big welcome to my two guests joining me today, uh, Gijs van Houten, he's joining me from Dublin, I think, and Giovanni Russo is joining me from Thessaloniki, maybe. Hi to the both of you. Hello. Good morning, Anne. So um, without further ado, um, let's just dive in to this latest uh, report, which is the European Company Survey 2019. It's the fourth edition, and it's a collaborative work between SEDEFOP and Eurofound. Uh, we've had Eurofound guests uh, before already on, on the podcast, but it's the first time we have somebody from uh, SEDEFOP. Um, the survey uh, was um, published in a report just uh, this past uh, October 2020. The, the report is called Workplace Practices Unlocking Employee Potential. Um, and we're just going to really dive in with Hayes. If you could please tell the listeners uh, briefly how this research work comes together and a little bit an introduction to the, to the report. Sure, yeah. Uh, so the European Company Survey uh, is actually a survey of establishments. And by establishments, we mean the local units of businesses. So we're really interested at what happens at the, at the local workplaces. So not the company policies, but rather the practices. Uh, as you already indicated, it was carried out jointly by Eurofound and Cedefop. And that's sort of a, well, it's, it's, it's a new thing. Like uh, Agencies haven't done this 
large-scale collaboration uh, before. And the survey collects information on workplace practices uh, with regard to work organization, human resource management, uh, skills use and development of skills, as well as on employee participation. And by that, we mean direct uh, participation of employees as well as uh, the workplace social dialogue, so trade unions or works councils. Uh, interviews were carried out uh, with uh, almost 22,000 managers and uh, just over 3,000 employee representatives in all the uh, 27 European member states and the United uh, Kingdom. It was the first time uh, that a large business survey like this one was carried out with, with what is called a push-to-web methodology. That means that we contacted the businesses uh, via telephone, then identified the respondents that we were uh, interested in interviewing, and then sent them a link uh, to carry out the, the survey online. Uh, in the analysis, we try to look at uh, what practices businesses have in place. So. Yeah, as I mentioned already, we, we cover a range of topics and we want to look at what it is that they're doing, but we're particularly interested in how they combine practices across different areas. So whether in how they design their work organization, how that ties in with how they uh, manage their human resources and how they deal with training and learning, as well as how they deal with employee uh, voice. And then we want to see to what extent the way they combine these practices is associated with outcomes. And we look at outcomes for workers as well as for uh, employers. And we're particularly interested in what we call win-win outcomes. So uh, businesses that manage to uh, generate outcomes that benefit both workers and employers at the same time. Um, in addition to that, we also look at innovation, uh, digitalization and uh, product market strategies. So to see the, sort of in what context businesses are operating and how these uh, mega trends, you could say, digitalization, uh, as well as uh, workplace developments uh, are associated with what they do uh, and how they design the workplace. What the survey shows is that it's possible, right, to design your workplace such that it benefits both uh, workers and uh, employers. Um, when you uh, bundle practices that increase employee autonomy, facilitate employee voice, and promote training and learning, you're more likely to uh, boost your performance while at the same time improving uh, workers' job quality. And also we find that businesses that apply such a, an integrated approach uh, also perform better in terms of being more highly digitalized, uh, be more innovative. And what I think is an interesting finding is that although we do find that this type of, uh, let's say this high road to uh, workplace design is, is, is found more in those businesses that aim to compete on uh, quality or aim to compete on innovation, it's also found in, in quite a sizable proportion of businesses that aim to compete on price. So even though they try to be cheaper than the competition, they still manage to design the workplace such that both uh, the performance of the of, of, of the uh, the business uh, as well as uh, the well-being of the employees benefits. Uh, we also found what I think is interesting is a, a very clear association between direct employee participation and between indirect employee participation. So by indirect, we mean uh, the participation of employees through their representatives, be it a trade union delegation or be it a works council. Um, and we also found that both these types of uh, participation, if they function well within the workplace, this is also associated with 
positive outcomes for both employers and employees. Uh, so there seems to be a, a business case for facilitating uh, employee voice. Uh, and it also suggests that if we are looking to promote this type of practices, there's a clear role for social partners in terms of improving uh, workplace practices. Um, so I, I think I'll leave it at that. Okay, so just a quick follow-up question for the listeners who are now trying to wrap their heads around these 22,000 responses to the survey. How, how do we need to imagine it? Is there maybe a, a Polish small business uh, making some um, technology parts? Is there a, a bakery from the UK? So, so what kind, do you have an idea of, of, of the kinds of businesses or is that are participating in this? Yeah, yeah, of course. And and I should have actually mentioned that. So the, the survey focuses on businesses with at least 10 employees. So that means that the very small businesses are not included. There's such a different uh, category that they would deserve their own research project. It's very hard to combine that in a, in a, in a in a survey like this. So we're only looking at those businesses with 10 employees or more. We've excluded uh, the public sector, so we're only looking at uh, commercial uh, businesses or not-for-profits, strictly speaking, as well. Uh, and they are distributed more or less evenly uh, across Europe. There's sort of a, like in the smaller countries, the samples are a little bit smaller, but we have uh, businesses from all over uh, Europe. And as you say, they, they could be a, a, a small uh, machine shop in, uh, in Poland or a bakery in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a knowledge economy. Exactly. No, it's it's the it's the whole economy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, t- we we've yeah we really try to cover uh, have, like the, the sample is designed to be re- representative for all businesses in Europe that have um, well in a certain selection of sectors mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that have more than ten employees. Mm-hmm. So moving on a little bit. Um... This has already been the fourth time of, of running this survey and, and learning about this, but I also would like to know what are the, the reasons behind such a survey? Um, does it make sense to, to compare uh, you know, the, the Portuguese uh, <laughs> small manufacturer with the, with the Finnish IT company? Um, especially in this European context, uh, uh, employee well-being and, and investment in skills training autonomy, uh, so all these different aspects that I can kind of see situated in this matrix that is also also in the report. It's a little bit all these moving parts that that somehow come together in a configuration in one way or another. But w- why is this important for us to know? Uh, maybe, Hayes, I'm turning to you first. Yeah, sure. Maybe to just give a bit of context first. So, so Eurofound and, and Cedefop are both European agencies. Uh, so we get funded by the European Commission to support policymaking at the European and the national level. And both of these agencies have what is called a tripartite management board. That means that on our management board, we have representatives from workers, employers, and national governments from all the member states. And this already sort of I guess indicates why we have a particular interest in issues of social dialogue and employee voice. Just the, the, the presence of the social partners, of course, already uh, provides an explanation for that. It's also very central to the European uh, model. Uh, and then from the Eurofound perspective, uh, the long name of, of Eurofound is the European Foundation for the Improvement of Living and Working Conditions, right? So. We have a very clear angle, which is we're interested in improving working conditions for workers across Europe. And a large part of how working conditions come about is, of course, 
by decisions of managers. They design the workplace in which these workers work. Um, and, and most uh, workers work as employees in, in, in businesses. So taking a look at the company perspective in order to get an idea of what working conditions look like, uh, from our point of view, makes a lot of uh, sense. That said, we're interested in working conditions, but in order for businesses to compete on the global stage, uh, they need to be agile, they need to be in innovative. And uh, what we try to do with the survey is to see to what extent can these two things go hand in hand. And our, our, our uh, results suggest that they do. Um, like for competitiveness to be sustainable and inclusive is like that's one of the big aims of the of the, the, the European Commission. Uh, we would suggest that business performance needs to be based on good quality jobs that motivate workers at all levels of the organization to make good use of their skills and knowledge and to actively engage in improving and innovating business processes and outputs. So to come to your point about do we then need to compare uh, like very different businesses from very different countries. What we're trying to look at is whether there are commonalities, right? Uh, whether in these businesses there there are similarities in how they uh, treat their staff, in how they design their workplace that might uh, give them an edge in order to outperform the competition, but also to provide a better workplace for their uh, their employees. And I think that's what we find, right? That, that the patterns that we find in terms of the workplace practices, we find across a wide variety of businesses, across different size classes, across different sectors. And yes, there's variability. So obviously certain practices are more common in certain sectors or like bigger businesses do things slightly differently than smaller businesses. But we also find a very clear Similarity, which is that if you manage to give a bit more space for uh, to your employees to challenge themselves, to uh, develop themselves, and you give them the uh, the tools to uh, to deal with this this increased autonomy, you do a bit a little bit better, and and your staff does a little bit better, and that holds roughly uh, regardless of what specific circumstance you're in. So basically, uh, the report is, in a way, also challenging this myth that success comes at a price, that for an, a company to be very competitive or very innovative, um, you know, people need to be willing to, to work under certain types of conditions, which may not be, you know, the best ones or the most conducive to their well-being, but that's just the price we pay for, you know, for, for, for innovation, for for market leadership, um, and you're proving the point that actually it's the opposite, that the more you invest in well-being, the more you invest in um, good uh, working conditions, the more you listen to your employees, uh, the more you tend to also have business success. Now, uh, coming to maybe Giovanni, uh, with the same question a little bit about uh, turning the angle to, to investing in skills mm. and training and all, you know, why is that, that we, from Sedefop's point of view, why, why is it interesting to, to ask these 22,000 businesses around, you know, how they train, what they train on and, and, and how does the skills situation look like? Uh, well, um, the Sedefop shares 
many of the uh, of the features of uh, Eurofound. So we, we are also tripartite organizations, but our angle was a bit um, um, was a bit different because we were coming. Um, uh, we were growing a certain level of unhappiness with the uh, current approach to skills, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which, which sees from the one hand employers claiming that they cannot find the skills they need or they are hindered by the lack of skills. And on the other hand, the policymaker really focusing on skilling employees and promoting an employability. So shifting the responsibility for the investment in skills on the employees very much. So um, for us, uh, it, it was obvious that you know it is it is hard to hire good people. It's always been you know, um, but the main point is that even if you hire good people, it is the context around them that influences their behavior. So uh, for us, uh, looking at the way you know, if one draws on one skills, it's more a matter of context and expectations, maybe opportunities and motivation. It's not so much the lack of skills. Um, so we wanted to take uh, the context back in the discourse. So uh, skill, use, skill utilization is having the opportunities and the motivation to, to draw and use uh, their own skills. Uh, these are, tend to be matters of uh, um, how jobs are designed and the organizational context, wider organizational context. The context, however, is not something that is fixed. I mean, it stems from the organizational culture. It is shaped by managerial decisions. So this is why we were wanting to put this element back into the policy discourses. Mm -hmm. Great. So basically looking at whether people bring 100% of themselves to work, are they willing to deploy all of their talents, all of their resources for this employer, or maybe they do not feel that they uh, you know, have the conditions to, to make this investment of themselves for, for this employer, right? Exactly. Or they feel like the employer is not interested in them uh, producing 100% and they just feel that it is asked from them to repeat a certain number of motions and that's it. Great, great. Very interesting. So, um, Giovanni, maybe continuing with you, um, were there any findings in this fourth edition that were surprising, something that you didn't expect to find. Maybe I just need to say here in brackets that this was, of course, done prior to the pandemic. So we're talking about a, a situation that is not the one we're living in now. Um, and whether there were any findings that maybe challenges our established ideas or misconceptions about, you know, maybe the size of organizations, because when usually in these um, conferences or events, or even generally publications around um, company policies and management interventions, we always see the Google and the Facebook, you know, these, mm -hmm. these, these 10 companies, always the, the SAP, always the same companies, you know, being able to create these kind of workplaces. And I just want to tease out from you whether, you know, maybe you have found some uh, organizations that you weren't expecting who are actually getting it all right. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Let, let me... <laughs> it's a long question. Just please <laughs> yeah. feel free to start it wherever you feel comfortable. No, no, I, I start from the very beginning in a sense, you know, um, there were many be before us. So, uh, we've been building this, uh, uh, questionnaire and this cell and the survey, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. So there were people, uh, who have, uh, investigated the fields before us. So, um, the results weren't 
really, um, um, I'd say, um, we weren't really surprised by our results, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, th that was something that was already uh, in the literature and we've been following what others have followed and the path has been uh, laid for us in a sense. So we were knowing that we were going in a certain direction. This, this said, I think I was surprised anyways um, for, I mean, by the, by the degree of coherence of our results. This is the strong point in our, in our research. I think our, um, our results, if you look at the coherence between all the blocks, so um, we have um, the blocks on autonomy, the blocks on investment in training, the blocks on motivation, they all give the expected results and they all come together with block on uh, employee involvement to deliver outcomes. I think uh, this was really, um, um, really exceptional. Also, uh, it, the, the importance of managerial support across all phases uh, came out really nice and strong. I, I mean, this might be an open door or something that is, an, you know, uh, very trivial. But if you look at the, the, the amount of attention that has been given to the context and to managerial roles into the policy discourse, this is something, um, this is something new. Yeah. Um, I think also to go to 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 go, get back to the to the second part of your question and linking up to what Heise said, I think we find uh, these patterns um, in many different uh, in many different companies, uh, small, large, medium, uh, in various sectors, uh, in, in different countries. So I think these are common patterns that can be played out. Uh, I would say at all levels, maybe within different configurations, but they're all helpful and they help across, so to say. It doesn't really need to be, you know, a super giant company with 15 branches in 24 different countries and with thousands of employees, all bright and young. Um, this works everywhere. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the, the nice result, I think. It's a very powerful result, actually. And and so just to choose, just to maybe a quick uh, follow up here. So when you say the degree of coherence, you know, across all the blocks, um, it means that you found the same kind of results uh, based on the same type of interventions or configurations across the countries and across the sizes. Right. It, I'm sorry. What, just what, translating what meant, it a little bit. Yes. No. What, what I meant it is that um, uh, we found that you know autonomy leads to better results when supported. Uh, investing in people leads to better results when supported. Uh, involving people, employees, uh, leads to better results when supported. Um, uh, and, and if you put all these together, it leads to better super, uh, results. You see, um, uh, there is no countervailing effects. They all work in the same direction towards better results, towards better outcomes. Again, so that's great. So this goes back to a little bit to my earlier point around the price of success, right? That you you can invest in the autonomy. Um, you know, maybe this is a message to micromanaging managers or those who want a lot of control that if you empower your employees to, to, you know, come up with the best way to do the work that will lead to positive uh, results and benefits across the board, um, mm. or if you invest in skills, or if you spend that amount of money on employee well-being, that is going to give you returns uh, over, the, over time. 
Now, Reis, um, uh, what would you say are the two, three uh, key takeaways for employers or senior middle managers of the study? Well, I, I think, I mean, I need to be careful not to be repeating myself, but I, I, I think the survey really clearly shows that combining practices that increase employee autonomy, uh, facilitate employee voice and promote, promote training and learning um, have, are being shown to improve the outcomes for uh, for both employers and employees. And uh, so what managers would need to think about is how do I design my jobs? How, like what jobs am I asking of my workers uh, to do? Does it allow them to, uh, does it give them a bit of space to explore new things, to explore new ways uh, of working uh, are they faced with some level of challenge or are they just asked to do the same routine task over and over again that Giovanni already alluded to that as well um, and this reconsideration of how you ask workers to do their jobs isn't necessarily an expensive thing right it, it requires a change in thinking rather than a big investment um, the same arguably is true for giving uh, giving employees the opportunity to voice their ideas and their concerns and to actually take the time to listen to that. Now, time, of course, is money, so it does. And, and I think that's, that's an, an interesting finding uh, that I found striking. Um, it doesn't come f completely for free, right? Like, it doesn't cost a lot of money, but it costs a bit of time. And we found this in the survey as well, which I thought was, was, was interesting, which is that uh, those uh, managers that have the most comprehensive practices in place for employee uh, participation are also the ones that are most likely to say that involving employees in decision-making causes delays. So they're not all positive, which in a way speaks to the quality of the survey, because sometimes the criticism is that positive people will just be positive about whatever or that managers will just give you a sales pitch. They are positive about some things, but they're also clearly recognizing that there is a trade-off um, and that uh, you might lose a little bit of efficiency and speed and even control over decision-making by uh, involving employees in the process, but that there are very clear competitive advantages uh, and opportunities for improving the efficiency and effectiveness of businesses uh, by setting up these uh, processes for involvement. Uh, so I think that's that's an, an important takeaway. And in the end, what that requires is trust. Uh, if there's no trust between management and employees, then, then this all falls apart. Managers need to trust employees in order to allow them the autonomy uh, they need to uh, to, or to give them any autonomy. Uh, on the other hand, um, employees need to trust management that if they come up with a great idea, that management doesn't come around and say, well, that's great. We now can do the, uh, the process much more uh, efficiently. So we're going to lay off three, four people. Uh, they have to have the confidence that management, uh, when taking on board the uh, ideas of impro for improvements of employees, also shares the benefits uh, with uh, with employees, um, and then arguably a way of harnessing uh, that trust, uh, 
and it comes back to the association we found between direct and indirect participation might be to combine forms of direct and indirect uh, participation. So it might help to delegate formal bargaining uh, over distributive issues, issues uh, to the social partners so that the shop floor discussions between managers and, uh, and employees can be about finding effective solutions for the, the, the workplace problems at hand. So that's basically you you formalize your discussion on how to split the pie so you can focus your workplace uh, conversations about how to increase the size of the pie. Mm. And uh, in terms of uh, geography, um, you know, when looking or thinking about European research projects, uh, my mind goes, you know, automatically to, you know, some of the utopic uh, Scandinavian <laughs> section of, of Europe. Uh, um, which, which were some of the countries where you could see this really across maybe the board better than in other countries where they would really listen to the employees and, and, um, and take time to invest in this, uh, this employee voice and employer-employee relationship? Well, unfortunately, uh, our findings do uh, sort of mirror your suspicion, right? Uh, <laughs> it's very clear that, uh, that the Nordic countries uh, perform a little bit better. Uh, not a little bit. <laughs> they perform better than, uh, than many, uh, many of the other countries. Um, I think some surprise, like and on the on the less nice side of things, we find Poland, Greece, where these attractive uh, practices are less prevalent but it doesn't mean they're absent and i think that's and i think this is the point that we keep on making that uh, even in uh, countries where uh, the the prevalence of these these let's say again like let's call it the companies that use the high road is 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 the least it's still more than 10% which is a considerable considerable parts of the of, of the population given that on average it's about 20 percent right so yes we find clear country differences yes we find the obvious candidates denmark finland sweden a bit more surprising maybe cyprus and the uk on on, on the nice end of the uh, distribution but even in those countries where it's less prevalent it's still there and and they're in in a non-negligible part of the of the population mm -hmm. That's, that's really great to know. Um, maybe going back to Giovanni about um, focusing, zooming in a little bit on, on training and, and skills development. Um, I just really liked the, the way you presented Giovanni early on, the, what you wanted to challenge about whose responsibility is it to train and upskill people once we have hired them because it seems to be a little bit of a finger pointing between educational institutions, employers, the state and the individuals who somehow have to now in this very VUCA and complex world be almost more and more in charge of their own skills development to be employable and to find uh, professional success. So, so what were maybe some of these findings in terms of employers taking their responsibility to provide the training opportunities to, em to employees? Um, okay, so uh, let me first uh, begin um, 
at the end of the question with something completely different is the outcomes. Because uh, what we do, we express our, um, we link uh, our models to outcomes. So these outcomes, what I want to point out is that are very real for uh, employers. So when we talk about outcomes, we talk about things like the ability to retain employees, um, their ability, the ability of the organization to be profitable, uh, the containment of sickness, sickness leave, or to have good relationship uh, uh, between uh, managers and employees. So these are very, the way I see it, these are very real outcomes, okay? So this being said, uh, these outcomes are indeed linked to the way uh, companies or organizations um, use uh, their employee skills and their employee knowledge. Um, what I think it is um, um, taking what, what it means to, uh, to take this responsibility serious, I think it is a matter of culture and education. Um, organizational culture because we see that we need managerial support across a number of areas. So you need to have uh, support for autonomy, support if you give autonomy, um, support for training when you give training, uh, support for involvement when you involve uh, employees. So uh, the companies need, organization and managers need to see that, that, that their employees have knowledge and this knowledge can be used as a source of competitive advantage. Um, the other thing that is important is education, because especially the, if you want to try to move uh, companies from one group to the other towards the better group, so to say, um, something needs to change. And um, a place uh, in which uh, this something needs to change is the managerial styles, the way managers uh, handle human resources. Um, in my personal view is that, you know, um, a lot of managerial education is very technical. So it is about problem solving, solving uh, production problems, organizing schedules, um, uh, finding new markets, uh, organizing uh, the introduction, the launch of new products, uh, marketing, all these. The part of human resources is a bit a kind of an afterthought. Um, but during the 90s, uh, when there was this huge delayering of organization that began flatter and flatter, a lot of this responsibility of human resources management has been pushed on the line managers. That, and these people were used to solve technical problems. Many of them were coming from the ranks of engineers. Um, so there has been a kind of a uh, disconnect there because they were left to their own devices. And we must recognize that managing people is maybe the hardest task. You know, I mean, if you had kids, you know what I mean. Uh, it is really difficult to, um, to organize their, um, their efforts, so to say. So uh, I think uh, we need a lot of support for the managerial class. This, they cannot be left alone. They need to be supported in this kind of transitions. Um, we also have to recognize that, you know, at, at this very moment, the, 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 this class is probably under a huge amount of pressure because of the of the crisis, and and because of also the, the transition will come on top of everything else. So support might be real there, has to be real, and probably um, I, we can see, you know, business um, employer associations or, or a chamber of commerce being involved in the provision of such, of such support. Yeah, especially, um, I mean, just, sorry, just to piggyback on your point, uh, because people management is, you know, that, that's almost as a, a job in itself. Um, it whereas we give 
uh, or organizations give people management responsibility uh, almost as a reward. So if you have been the best salesman on the sales team, as a reward, you get to be the head of the sales team and stop doing what you've been doing so far. You were really good at sales and now move you to managing people. And this is, you know, across the board in all organizations. Um, was there something you were able to unlock about this in, in, from the report or what is your take in any case on, on this, on, on where should people get their skills to manage people if they haven't had the, the training or the opportunity to do that or to learn it? Um, I think you, you, you raise a very good point. I mean, this is not something we, um, we looked at in, in the report because we didn't have time, but uh, many, many times, this is a, one of the problems which is recognized in the, in the literature on, on recruitment and uh, on um, human resources. Sometimes you promote people to new, uh, to new jobs based on records on, on, on past performance on a different job. So the performance in your current job doesn't maybe tell anybody anything about your performance in, 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 in your next job, so to say. Um, uh, so th this is this is an issue, uh, of course, because the new job will have um, uh, responsibility of uh, you know coordinating and and and, and, um, and uh, leading people. Then, if you didn't have the training, you need to have it. You need to you need to be exposed to these uh, to these things. Um, and of course, it's not only a, man, a, a training of how to manage your team or how to lead your team. Uh, you know, it is close to what are your values, uh, how you empower your team, if you want to empower your team or if you want to control your team. You see, it, it is really complex. Um, th this, is a difficult, uh, this is a difficult package of training to deliver. Um, so I, I think we, we have to recognize that, you know, uh, the, the, the current generation of of, uh, of, of managers, uh, pressed as they are, um, will need a lot of attention and support in the transition. But I think we don't have to waste the opportunity to look at the next generation of, of managers, those who are still in business schools, those who are still in education. And I think we have to take these elements and, you know, embed them in their, in their managerial education, possibly with the, with the support of business schools, because I think by, by delivering a fresh generation of managers which are knowledgeable and aware of this, of this concept, this could be um, this concept could actually have uh, be readily in, implemented in workplaces. Absolutely, I think this is so true. And you know, we know from practice and the literature of uh, mental health issues at work that it's it the, the your direct line manager is is the the most important mediator of all these factors. And you can be in the most amazing organization, but if your direct supervisor is controlling, is distrustful, is maybe not skilled enough to, to be a good manager, to motivate you or bring the best out of you, then you will have a, 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 you know, a, a pretty negative work experience. And it's, the, it's also the, the contrary, um, even in organizations that may not be considered, uh, you know, the, uh, what was it that Hayes was using? The, the, those taking the high road. <laughs> yes. But if you have by accident or by chance a manager who somehow has acquired these great people management skills, then, then you can have a great uh, employee experience. Uh, absolutely. 
Um, I, I think this personal relationship with the line manager is important. They are, the line managers are the translators of, of, of the implementators of HR policies, so to say. But this is why I think that the, what Heiss said before about the importance of trust, you know, good relationships are based on trust and on understanding, clear understanding of what your role are, what your role is, and how uh, what are the motivational um, levels around you. You know, absolutely. So maybe bringing back Hayes into the the conversation, um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about these different aspects of, of the findings. I was quite interested uh, in reading the report about, you know, uh, innovation and employee well-being, the one you also mentioned at, at the beginning. These, the, the term you're using, I keep forgetting, are the ones that take the, the high road. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can label them what you want. In in our report, we're talking about high investment, high involvement uh, businesses. And I mean, as you were saying before, like we show that it's possible to generate good results while uh, also improving uh, the, uh, the job quality and the well-being of employees. doesn't mean that it's not also possible to do it without, right? It's just, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're showing that it's possible to do so. And like, we would argue that it's uh, preferable to do so. Um, and, and, you know, because when I was reading the report, I was in the work we're doing at the work life hub with, you know, the, 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 the you know, with, with the consulting of, uh, and workplace uh, practice, you know, we're working together with employers and workplaces it seems to be that there are, uh, you know, fresh organizations, startups, small companies led by maybe younger people, maybe led by women, people with a diversity back background who get it. And then they are going to have those values and believe those values and then translate those values into real organizational policies and practices. And then you have maybe those that are on the brink of collapse, you know, organizations that uh, are almost going bust or have had some real shock to them and they need to totally renew themselves. So they bring in a new HR, they bring in a new CEO, and then they really do a, a whole overhaul of their practices. But then in my experience, you have a whole bunch of organizations somehow in the middle, which are doing just fine but they don't somehow have this feeling they need to become high investment, high involvement organizations. They don't, they feel, okay, the way we've been doing this for 50 years is working still. So, you know, let's, let's, so am I, am I totally off the mark here in my uh, assumptions around who is doing better than others? I don't think so, uh, but I, I don't think our data can fully back you up either. <laughs> so, um, as I said earlier, like we're only looking at uh, businesses with at least ten employees. So that means that in our uh, in, in the sample that we looked at, there are very few uh, startups. Uh, I actually looked at it, uh, and 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 only one percent of the businesses in the sample have been around for less than five years. Oh, okay, so, that's interesting. So, that's one percent. Uh, well, you said. Yeah. Ah, that's that's very interesting to know. So that gives me hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when we when I looked at it more in more detail, I did find uh, that younger businesses tend to be a bit more. Uh, 
innovative tend to be more likely or are more likely to be in this high investment, high involvement type and tend to also perform a little bit better uh, than older uh, businesses and have better well-being. So in that sense, there's some support for, for what you're saying. Um, not sure, like we don't know a lot about the background of managers. We know a little bit about their position in the business. We know their position in the business. So whether they're a general manager or a human resources manager or something like that. And we know their uh, gender, but we haven't really analyzed it yet. Um, so I think you made some good points about uh, the diversity or a minority background that might bring in a fresh perspective. We don't really have, well, we could at least look at the, at the gender dimension, but we haven't done so yet. And we don't have much else to work with uh, in, in that regard. But we do, as I said, find something about these younger businesses. And this might suggest that there is some sort of cultural shift going on. A generational uh, where, shift, right? A, a generational yeah. shift, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, where, where younger businesses that likely have younger managers are more likely to take a more people-centered approach to manager management than those in the older generation that grew up in a world that in general was more hierarchical and uh, uh, control-based. Mm -hmm. uh, That's very interesting. Um, time is running incredibly fast on these uh, really highly interesting uh, podcast conversations. So before we move to the last question, would you like to share with the listeners the websites of the two agencies where they can find the report, where they can maybe get in touch with you or find out more about your work? Uh, yeah, I, th I think it worth, it's worth looking at uh, websites uh, for, for, for the websites for Eurofound or, or Setofop. So the Eurofound one is www.eurofound.europa.eu. And I think not only the report is interesting to look at, but we also have an online data visualization tool where people can uh, play around with the data themselves. And uh, that might be interested, interesting for them to look at uh, as well. On the website, it should be self-evident. There's a publications tab and there's a data and resources tab that would lead people to uh, to these resources. Setofop um, will have uh, information about uh, um, the report, the, the results from the company survey at www.cedefop.europa.eu. Um, there we'll also have uh, additional information coming from um, a big data project that we've done by scraping a huge amount of information from vacancy data across Europe. That is also maybe something worth looking at. And um, uh, so this is also very self-explaining and we have all the tabs when pointing at the different projects. That's great. I, I highly recommend to listeners to go check out both of the websites because there's uh, really fantastic uh, resources there uh, from uh, blog articles, which, you know, give you the high level information to the to the reports, the different reports, and also the data. So I think it's it's always worth um, subscribing to the both of your newsletters, but also to to visit. Uh, keep in mind to visit regularly these these two great great resources. Um, now, in closing, uh, we ask always the same question here on the Work Life Hub podcast, and this is to give uh, equip managers with some advice. Um, so maybe Giovanni starting with you and then I don't know if Reis wants to jump in as well but if you could give those senior managers managers listening to this podcast uh, one advice uh, that you have learned from this research that's something that they should really consider 
and take action on? What what would that be? Okay, um, with a lot of humility, eh, because uh, um, and humbleness, because I mean I know how difficult the work the, the work of a manager is. I think I would uh, I would take the uh, one sentence uh, so that is. Uh, um, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, I think uh, COVID-19, uh, okay, our uh, fieldwork was before the COVID-19. But COVID-19 uh, has increased the, uh, the amount of autonomy that the employers gave to workers. So you can take it as an experiment. Now, uh, what would be very good if uh, management could actually uh, sit back, take, take stock of their experience, and um, to see whether their workplace has improved and how, if yes, and reflect on what to do to sustain these gains. And that is, with adequate support, maybe this could be the initial step in a journey towards a different model of workplace relationship. So I would take this COVID as an opportunity to really look into these issues. That's great. Uh, Hayes, would you like to add something? Uh, sure. I mean, I think it's a very obvious thing and, uh, that, that I think comes from our research, which is that managers should take the time to listen to their uh, employees. And again, this, this sounds like an open door and employees are also going to say things that managers don't want to hear or they're going to say things that are completely irrelevant. But I think that our findings do show that if you take the time to uh, to listen to your staff and you follow up on what they're saying, Ultimately, they're going to say things that are more and more interesting, and it's worth investing in this and building a relationship uh, where uh, ownership of the uh, the business is felt to be much more uh, shared, and and everybody's felt to be a genuine part of of of, of uh, the same uh, objective. And building trust as well in the process. Well, uh, yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much to Reis Reis van Houten and Giovanni Giovanni Russo from Eurofound and Center for Perspectively. Thank you very much for taking the time and coming on this podcast and sharing your work and sharing your passion for this work as well with the listeners. Uh, and I just want to wish you really the best of success uh, going forward. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you again for listening to this podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have and learned a lot about the report. If you go onto our website, uh, worklifehub.com uh, slash podcasts, on the podcast page, you will find actually uh, the link to the report and the link to both organizations where you can find out those tools and find out more about the tools and the reports that both uh, Reis and Giovanni were talking about. Um, and you will find also all the other podcast episodes where we have actually two others from colleagues from Eurofound. Thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>